Thanks to the wonderful folks at Anchor.fm. Welcome, listeners, to Tom Reads Your Story. Join voice actor Tom Zania as he reads from social media, news articles, his past audiobook recordings, and other spoken word projects, including those great writing projects that you send in. And now, here's your host, voice actor and podcaster, Tom Zania. And thank you very much, Mr. Announcer, for that wonderful introduction. Welcome, fans of the spoken word. This is Tom Reads Your Story. I'm Tom Zania. Thanks for stopping by. I am glad you're here. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about someone on the Apollo 11 crew that you've probably heard of, and maybe some of you have not, Buzz Aldrin, and he is the second man to walk on the moon, of course. I'm going to talk a little about him, and then later in the show, I'm going to read an article uh, from Space News Magazine about how a computer programmed the lunar module and probably the, the main ship, the Columbia. But I'm, also, I'm basically talking about the computer guys, computer folks that uh, went into designing the programming for the lunar module, the computer programming, which Buzz Aldrin, by the way, was in charge of. He was the designated lunar module pilot. I will be reading, first of all, from biography.com about Aldrin. And I just think it's important, you know, to give a little, you know, information uh, about the person I'm, I'm talking about. Like when I talk about an author, uh, I'll read something from, um, from Wikipedia. This time, I'm not going to be reading from Wikipedia. I'll read from biography.com. And then later in the show, I will read from uh, spacenews.com. And I will be right back. Miles Junction, Rust Belt, USA, where hope is scarce and hardship is a way of life. It's but one of many northeastern Ohio towns, long forgotten and left behind. It's residents living on the cusp of financial, emotional, even spiritual destitution. Their lives and others are linked by a ruined yet starkly beautiful post-industrial landscape, a desolate vestige of our fractured American dream. In just the right light is a glimpse at one region's bleak inheritance and the precarious lives of those who remain. Written by William R. Solden, and narrated by Tom Zania. Listen to this incredible book by visiting audible.com. From biography.com, Buzz Aldrin. Who is Buzz Aldrin? Buzz Aldrin's father, a colonel in the U.S. Air Force, was the one who originally encouraged his interest in flight. Aldrin became a fighter pilot and flew in the Korean War. 
1963, he was selected by NASA for the next Gemini mission. In 1969, Aldrin, along with Neil Armstrong, made history when they walked on the moon as part of the Apollo 11 mission. Aldrin later worked to develop space-faring technology and became an author, writing several sci-fi novels, children's books, and memoirs, including Return to Earth, Magnificent Desolation, and No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon. Early Life Famed astronaut Buzz Aldrin was born Edwin Eugene Aldrin, Jr. on January 20, 1930, in Montclair, New Jersey. He earned his nickname Buzz as a child when his little sister mispronounced the word brother as buzzer. His family shortened the nickname to Buzz. Aldrin would make it his legal first name in 1988. His mother, Marion Moon, was the daughter of an army chaplain. His father, Edwin Eugene Aldrin, was a colonel in the U.S. Air Force. In 1947, Aldrin graduated from Montclair High School in Montclair, New Jersey, and headed to the U.S. Military Academy at West Point. He took well to the discipline and strict regimens and was the first in his class his freshman year. He graduated third in his class in 1951 with a Bachelor of Science in Mechanical Engineering. His military career. Aldrin's father felt his son should continue on to multi engine flight school so that he could eventually take charge of his own flight crew, but Aldrin wanted to become a fighter pilot. His father relented to his son's wishes, and after a summer of hitching around Europe on military planes, Aldrin officially entered the United States Air Force in 1951. He again scored near the top of his class in flight school and began fighter training later that year. During his time in the military, Aldrin joined the 51st Fighter Wing, where he flew F-86 Sabre jets in 66 combat missions in Korea. During the Korean War, F-86 planes fought to defend South Korea from the invasion of the Communist forces in North Korea. Aldrin's wing was responsible for breaking the enemy kills record during combat when they shot down 61 enemy MiGs and grounded 57 others in one month of combat. Aldrin shot down two MiG-15s and was decorated with the Distinguished Flying Cross for his service during the war. After a ceasefire was declared between North and South Korea in 1953, Aldrin returned home he pursued higher education at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, where he planned to complete a master's degree and then apply for a test pilot school. Instead, he earned a Ph.D. in aeronautics and astronautics, graduating in 1963. His thesis subject, Line-of-Sight Guidance Techniques for Manned Orbital Rendezvous, was the study of bringing piloted spacecraft into close proximity with each other. Spaceflight and Apollo 11. His specialized study of rendezvous helped to earn him entry into the space program shortly after graduation. In 1963, Aldrin was part of a third group of men selected by NASA 
to attempt to pioneer space flight. He was the first astronaut with a doctorate, and because of his expertise, he earned the nickname Dr. Rendezvous. Aldrin was put in charge of creating docking and rendezvous techniques for spacecraft. He also pioneered underwater training techniques to simulate spacewalking. In 1966, Aldrin and astronaut Jim Lovell were assigned to the Gemini 12 crew. During their November 11 to November 15, 1966 space flight, Aldrin made a five-hour spacewalk, the longest and most successful spacewalk ever completed at that time. He also used his rendezvous abilities to manually recalculate all the docking maneuvers on the flight after the onboard radar failed. He also took a photograph of himself, which would later be called the first selfie in space on that mission. After Gemini 12, Aldrin was assigned to the backup crew of Apollo 8, along with Neil Armstrong and Harrison Jack Schmidt. For the historic Apollo 11 lunar landing mission, Aldrin served as the lunar module pilot. On July 20, 1969, he made history as the second man to walk on the moon, following mission commander Armstrong, who took the first step on the lunar surface. They spent a total of 21 hours during the moonwalk and returned with 46 pounds of moon rocks. The walk, which was televised, drew an estimated 600 million people to watch, becoming the world's largest television audience in history. Upon their safe return to Earth, Aldrin was decorated with the Presidential Medal of Freedom, followed by a 45-day international goodwill tour. Other honors include having asteroid 6470 Aldrin and the Aldrin Crater on the moon named after him. Aldrin and his Apollo 11 crewmates Armstrong and Michael Collins also received the Congressional Gold Medal in 2011, and the Apollo 11 crew were honored with four stars on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in California. His Later Career In March 1972, after 21 years of service, Aldrin retired from active duty and returned to the Air Force in a managerial role. He later revealed in his 1973 autobiography, Return to Earth, that he battled depression and alcoholism following his years with NASA, leading to a divorce. After rediscovering sobriety, Aldrin turned to studying advancements in space technology. He devised a spacecraft system for missions to Mars known as the Aldrin Mars Cycler and received three U.S. patents for his schematics of a modular space station, star booster reusable rockets, and multi-crew modules. He also founded ShareSpace Foundation, a non-profit organization devoted to advancing space education, exploration, and affordable spaceflight experiences. In 2014, he revamped the nonprofit to focus on STEAM education, science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, to inspire children from kindergarten through eighth grade to learn about space. In August 2015, he launched the Buzz Aldrin Space Institute at Florida Tech to promote and develop his vision of a permanent human settlement on the planet Mars, according to his official website. 
Aldrin also continued to give lectures and make television appearances, including competing on Dancing with the Stars in 2010, where he showed the world that a senior astronaut still had some impressive moves. He also made guest appearances on The Simpsons, 30 Rock, and The Big Bang Theory, and had a cameo in the movie Transformers, Dark of the Moon. Additionally, the iconic astronaut collaborated with hip-hop artists Snoop Dogg and Talib Kweli to create the song Rocket Experience to promote space exploration to young people. Proceeds from the sale of the song and video, which features music producer Quincy Jones and rapper Soldier Boy, benefit ShareSpace. In November 2016, Aldrin was on a tourist trip to Antarctica when he had to be medically evacuated to be treated at a hospital in New Zealand. A statement on his website said that he was in stable condition with fluid in his lungs, but in good spirits and responding well to antibiotics. In April 2018, the UK's Daily Star reported that Aldrin had submitted to an advanced technology lie detector test, which determined he was telling the truth when recalling how he saw a possible UFO during the famed Apollo 11 trip in 1969. Stories of Aldrin's supposed encounter had served as a touchstone for alien truthers for years, but the man himself squashed the rumors through his spokesperson, calling them fabrication for the sake of headlines. That June, Aldrin filed a lawsuit against two of his children, Andrew and Jan Aldrin, along with his business manager, Christina Corp, alleging elder and financial exploitation. The following month, he was a surprise no-show at the Apollo Gala that commenced a year-long anniversary of the first moon landing, despite the event being sponsored by ShareSpace. No reason was initially given for his absence. His Books In his later career, Aldrin became a prolific author. In addition to his first autobiography, Return to Earth, he wrote Magnificent Desolation, a memoir that hit bookshelves in 2009, just in time for the 40th anniversary of his historic moon landing. He has also written several children's books, including Reaching for the Moon, Look to the Stars, and Welcome to Mars, Making a Home on the Red Planet, science fiction novels including The Return and Encounter with Tiber, co-authored, co-authored with John Barnes, and Men from Earth, a historical account of the lunar landing. He released the memoir No Dream is Too High, Life Lessons from a Man Who Walked on the Moon, in 2016. And that, of course, was from biography.com. I usually, when I'm, I'm playing the backstory of the person, I, I usually pick Wikipedia. But if I can, I'll pick something that's better written. Wikipedia, to me, is very informative and very helpful, but it's not the greatest writing in the world, and it's not very compelling. Uh, so I was lucky enough to use this biography piece. Next, I'm going to... Uh, play a recording of me reading from spacenews.com, which uh, gets real specific about space exploration, uh, 
Some of this you may find a little eh, not so interesting, but I'm kind of a space junkie when it comes to space exploration. It's I'm sort of reliving my childhood now because <laughs> I was really into it when Apollo 11 happened. And uh, so every once in a while, I like to, to read some of that uh, information about space exploration that's available on the internet. And this is from Space News. Com. From spacenews.com, Apollonauts reflect on lunar landing and return to the moon. By Jeff Faust. The engineers who developed the computers that enabled the Apollo 11 lunar landing had little doubt the mission could be a success, and half a century later have advice for how NASA should return to the moon. In the 1960s, the MIT Instrumentation Laboratory had a NASA contract to develop the Apollo Guidance Computer, one of the first portable digital real-time computers used on both the command and lunar modules. Engineers took advantage of emerging technologies from that era, like integrated circuits, to develop a system that guided Apollo to the moon and to six successful landings on the lunar surface. The facility, now known as Draper Laboratory and spun out after Apollo as a non-profit organization, is marking the 50th anniversary of Apollo 11 with a Hack the Moon exhibition recalling its role in developing the Apollo guidance computer. At a media event at its headquarters here July 9th, several of the engineers dubbed Apollonauts by Draper discussed their experiences developing the computer. While the Apollo guidance computer pressed the limits of technology of the era, with the added constraints of schedule and size, those involved in the program said they never doubted they would be successful. The landing was kind of a nail-biter, but I don't think anybody thought we weren't going to do it, recalled Peter Kakmar, a rendezvous engineer who still works at Draper today supporting work on the Trident Missiles Guidance System. Whatever we set our minds to do at the lab, we can do. I had always felt it was going to be successful. That confidence, though, didn't mean development of the computer and its software was without problems. While advanced for its time, the computer had only 36,000 words, or 72 kilobytes of memory. That's why we rolled mission phases in and out, but they caused errors, said Margaret Hamilton, who led the team that developed the software for the computer. One such example, she recalled, was something her young daughter discovered playing with a model of the computer, inputting commands to start a pre-launch program while in the middle of the mission, caused the computer to crash. She then advised her management at MIT and NASA about the problem and suggested a software fix to prevent it from happening. They rejected her suggestion. We just can't do it, she said, they told her. The astronauts, they reassured her, are too well trained. It's not going to happen. It, in fact, did happen on Apollo 8, resetting the navigation system. Afterwards, she said management agreed to the software change 
to prevent that from happening again. The limited capacity of the computer also led to major cuts in the software. Jim Kerner, a lunar module software engineer, said that at one point the software exceeded 150% of the available storage. On a day dubbed Black Friday, NASA management directed major cuts to the software in order to fit into available storage. Up until that point, we all had the idea that the software would be self-contained and fly the mission without the help of the ground, he said. They chopped out a lot of the capability that was dear to hearts. Now the ground was preeminent, and we couldn't fly the mission without the ground. Perhaps the best-known issue with the computer system was the program alarms during the lunar module's descent on Apollo 11. That was triggered by a rendezvous radar that was on during the lander's descent, something the engineers said hadn't been anticipated during the development and testing of the computer. Hugh Blair Smith, who worked on the computer's hardware and software, said that Buzz Aldrin had decided to leave the rendezvous radar on during descent, even though it wasn't needed. That decision was based on the expertise with Apollo 10 when the lunar module briefly lost attitude control as it prepared to return to the command module. He became doubly aware of the possibility that they'd have to abort and start using the rendezvous radar quickly, he said. He made sure in Apollo 11 that the rendezvous radar was as ready for instantaneous use as it could possibly be. The fact that the radar was on, as well as what Blair Smith called a weird situation with the power supplies on the spacecraft, meant that the radar was taking up computer cycles, triggering the alarm. Buzz gets a lot of blame for that, unfairly, he said. Everything he had done was perfectly rational, and very well founded on the events of Apollo 10. The engineers worked directly with a number of astronauts on the computer system. Dan Lickley, a software engineer on the system, singled out Neil Armstrong as someone particularly interested in the computer. We were giving a lecture to a group of astronauts that was supposed to take one hour, and it took an hour and a half because Neil would just not stop asking questions, he said. We had no trouble communicating because it was one geek to another. We got along fine. Without the Apollo guidance computer, engineers said the Apollo landings would not have been possible. There wouldn't have been a mission, said Peter Vellante, a software engineer. He recalled comments made by Chris Kraft at a symposium ten years ago about Apollo. Among the things he said in his talk that day was that it would not have been possible to do Apollo without the modern digital computer. Computer systems have advanced remarkably in the half-century since Apollo, but the engineers who worked on the Apollo guidance computer still had advice for NASA as it returns to the moon with Artemis. One example of that advice is centralizing development. One of the most important features of the way the program was set up was that it was all here in one building, Blair Smith said. If someone ran into problems, he didn't send off an interdepartmental memo. He trots down two floors and asks me. Hamilton said that 
she's still seeing the use of the traditional life cycle approach to software engineering used in Apollo, which can be time-consuming and expensive. She called for the use of alternative approaches that avoid those problems. It's maybe going to happen, but it's still going to take time, she said. The most important thing is to understand exactly what miracles in project management were developed and worked, Blair Smith said. We had plenty to complain about at the time, but it really was amazing. And I hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you enjoy today's show. I do have to make one sort of important announcement. And I say sort of important because it may not even apply to you. But what I want to tell you is this. You can now, starting today, call into the show. Now, when I say call into the show, please remember the show is all sound files. Nothing you hear is live. So please, I'm going to give you a Google Voice phone number to call and leave a message. I will address your message on the next podcast uh, if it's something that I feel is worth talking about. Okay? Uh, the Google Voice number you want to call is 929-260-1952. Once again, that number is 929 260 1952. Call and leave a message if you have something to say about the uh, episode that you just heard, or if you have questions about the show. That's fine. And that should do it for this episode. If you enjoyed your visit today, please tell your friends and email me if you like at tomreadsyourstory at yahoo.com. If you have questions or comments, just like you would if you were using the uh, new Google Voice phone number. As always, thanks, Anchor.fm, for the chance to have an ongoing podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Until next time, stay safe and take care. For more information on Tom's availability for your e-learning, commercial, audiobook, or video project, visit his website at www.tomzvoices.weebly.com. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Tom Reads Your Story.